Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat, and brought to you by the head honcho at Sasta, Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now, what makes a perfect mojito? Lime, mint, rum, preferably Bacardi, and then a little soda water. But that's not all. There's one thing missing. That's you. I want to have mojitos with you at Sasta Annual 2017 in February. And all you need to do to make that happen is when purchasing your Sasta tickets, enter the promo code Drinks with Harry. Those three words, Drinks with Harry, and you'll not only get a mountain of mojitos for free, courtesy of Mr. Jason Lemkin, thanks Jason, but you'll also get a fantastic 20% off the ticket price. Sweet deal. However, enough of mojitos, and now time for the show stay. And I'm delighted to welcome Jeff Fernandez. Now, Jeff is the founder and CEO at Grovo, the learning management system that allows you to educate and empower your employees. And at Grovo, Jeff oversees sales, investor relations, and the building of Grovo's award-winning culture. Prior to founding Grovo in 2010, Jeff served as a product manager at Clickable. From 2006 until 2009, he led business development and sales for Doostang, an online career networking community. And Jeff is also a bit of a rock star off the SaaS field, getting the highest honors from Harvard, penning his thesis on human performance, and then playing semi-pro football for the New York Rebels. That has to be a first for a SaaS to guest. And I'd also like to say a massive thank you to Greg Sands at Costa Nerve Venture Capital for the intro to Jeff today. However, enough from me, and I'm so delighted to hand over to Jeff Fernandez, founder and CEO at Grovo. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jeff, fantastic to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Greg for the intro, but uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Jeff. Oh, thank you so much, Harry. Uh, excited about the opportunity to chat. No, thank you, to, Greg, as well. Absolutely. Greg's a legend. But I'd love to kick off today with, with a bit about you and how you came to found Grovo and what the aha moment was for you. Sure. So just a little bit about, about myself. I grew up in uh, a small town in New Jersey, about 10 miles from the George Washington Bridge with my mom, my dad, and my younger sister. I uh, had the good fortune to go to Harvard first person to go from my high school in about 34 years and a combination of a lot of great people, hard work, good luck along the way. Uh, and then before Grovo, I did two startups, both of which were acquired and venture backed. And I met some great people there. The second one, I met my wife, Corey, and, and, and our co-founder, Nick. And I introduced Nick to my best friend since the first grade. We were valedictorian in Slytherin of our high school class. Um, he went to Columbia as an engineer. And the three of us became very good friends and we were pretty entrepreneurial and had done startups in the past and uh, we went to dinner one night here in New York City uh, Union Square and it was the summer of 2010 and one of our friends sent us a text message asking us how to connect his Google Analytics to his WordPress and it was in that moment that was the aha moment we became very inspired because we realized that we were getting so many questions like this from all of our different friends and family etc and the opportunity to, to teach people how to better use the internet and the cloud in particular just seemed enormously exciting but could have a big impact on the world and, and on how people go about their day to day lives so you know we left our full time jobs and had a lot of support from the folks that we were working with at the time and invested all the money we had in the world, which is about $60,000, including our credit card debt that we were about to accumulate, and decided to, to, to work on it uh, full-time out of our apartments. Essentially to give people an education that's, that's actually helpful for the workplace, unlike school maybe? That, that's right. Absolutely. Awesome. I, I, I'd, I'd love to then start today. I, I got some inside intel uh, from some of your investors, uh, on, on particularly on your management style that came up. And a lot of them said that you lead from the heart. So I'd, I'd love to hear what that means to you and what advantages you think this gives you as, as a CEO and then the company and the culture as a whole. I think with uh, 
the good always comes the, the, the bad. I think the leading from the heart, I, I think for me means you know, being very direct and honest and forthright and transparent, but also being ideally empathetic and very caring as well and having passion for all that you do, all facets of the company and taking both a, a caring hand uh, as much as you do an intellectual point of view. And I think that has, in terms of the impact, I think as CEO, it gives you the opportunity to really connect with people and understand folks internally and externally as well. You build really strong relationships. It also sets up the, the paradigm and the infrastructure at the company for honesty and transparency and opens up a world where people can have the conversations that they want to have with each other. I think it builds more trust and the openness to disagree on something and commit to it even if you disagree. And I think that builds the fiber of the organization very differently. So as it relates to the culture, it's something that I think you need to just continue to monitor because there are certainly ebbs and flows. Having that infrastructure at the company, I think, helps you as the company changes and grows to be really deliberate about how you go about thinking about it and communicating things. So certainly lead with the heart, and I think, it, I think it opens up opportunity for you in a lot of ways. Are there any inherent challenges to kind of leading from the heart? I, I always kind of get stuck on the question of how emotional should your leader be? So I, I think absolutely. And it's something that I've learned as time has gone on as well. You know, the disadvantages can be, and it's something that I work on, frankly, pretty proactively it is um, it's okay. It's great to lead from the heart. But at the same time, knowing when to be a bit more reserved and to understand yourself well enough to know when leading from the heart perhaps needs to be tempered just a bit until you have your point of view firmly solidified. And that's something for me I've learned along the way. The passion enthusiasm is great, but make sure you have your point of view and realize that when you interact as CEO with, with, with folks that they're going to take what you say certainly very seriously. So just make sure as much as you're leading from the heart that you, you have your point of view is, is organized and, and concise and ideally consistent and aligned. And that's something that is, you have so much energy and passion and enthusiasm that I think you learn along the way. It's about controlling it and controlling the way you go about it, right? I'm really intrigued in terms of kind of control there and kind of internal control. Greg Sands tells me, the faithful Greg, that you really like, that you in the early days really like to work the floor with the sales team. I'm intrigued how that works and, and what you actually did internally and, and how that helps the team be, be more effective and close more business. Yeah, so thrilled to be on this podcast. I, I admire and, and uh, read Saster often, and I, I think I'll I'll start there, which is you know I think you're, when you're founder CEO in a B two B SaaS company, it's really important that you go ahead, start and build the early days of your sales team for a variety of reasons, right? I think one is you're working in a very small group of people, likely, right? And you need to understand the customer well and be able to work with uh, your product organization to. Build Build product and, and experiences that your customers want. So you're doing it to better understand your customer and build a product 
that has better and better product and market fit as you go. So you're getting that intelligence. At the same time, by working really closely with the sales organization, you know, you're, you're building the infrastructure and some of the process as you go. And you are absolutely the tip of the spear in getting your first 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 customers and then you're servicing them too. So you're, you're building uh, a lot of energy and enthusiasm around uh, the go-to-market and you're learning a lot as you do it. And I really enjoyed doing that with our team over here. And there's a lot of things that we did. The first thing is you just go and get a whiteboard and set up a whiteboard and put the numbers up on the wall. Uh, you know, we like a monthly cadence and work really hard every month and track it carefully right, with weekly and monthly forecasts to see how you're doing against it. You know, some folks go in to get a gong or a bell. Having something, I think, that's celebratory as you go ahead and, and you're performing and you're making it um, and making your number, I think is absolutely critical. And third, you just always hire in twos, right? Especially in the early days to make sure that you're building a team and and there's a friendly and competitive environment. You said there about goals and targets and when they are achieved. I speak to a lot of early stage SaaS founders who, who struggle with uh, internal sales compensation. Uh, to what extent do you think it's important that founders are willing to let the strings loose on the sales budget for compensation in order to incentivize properly? So I think it's absolutely critical. And this is one of the things that I think changes as time goes. Because in, in the very early days, what you're describing as almost an inception of, of a sales organization, I think it's very important to compensate on commission when you do a base as well, but on commission, especially meaningful, meaningful upside in those very early days because you're establishing your product to market fit. There isn't tried and true sales process. You're really making that leap of faith as you take your product to market. And generally, my recommendation and, you know, part of what you can find on Sasser too, is you want to have a commission plan that is extraordinarily exciting in those very early days. I think it motivates people, it inspires them, and they absolutely go the extra mile to make it happen. And, and my philosophy on compensation uh, of salespeople is as time goes, ideally, building your business and acquiring new customers, you get better and better and better at it. And the, the compensation plan that you have in the early days isn't necessarily the compensation plan that you'll have as time goes because ideally it's getting easier product and market fit is better you know the way that you go to market is smoother it's easier in terms of kind of you know as you said that you took a really hands-on approach to to working the floor with the sales team do you think that very active role uh what do you think that gives you in terms of different perspectives and advantages uh, it, it gives you a handful of perspectives and advantages that help you. One is you're absolutely the tip of the spear, and you are on the phone, listening to calls, guiding, coaching, grooming. At the same time, uh, interacting with customers and ideally what will be customers to understand what their problems are and what their perspective is and how you can deliver value to them. And that gets you so much information that your company needs from a product perspective, what should we build when from, from a sales perspective is okay. How do we think about describing what we do the value that it adds so we can streamline up our process. And 
you really can't do it any other way in the early days. You just need to get your hands very dirty and be the tip of the spear. And I still love to evolve and jump on sales calls and 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 uh, interact with our existing customers. Um, it's one of the favorite parts of my job. You said about kind of delivering value there to the customers, and I speak to a lot of uh, SaaS founders who who argue for their pricing mechanism in terms of value based pricing. I'm intrigued as to how you established your pricing mechanism at Grovo and what the kind of thesis was behind it. Frankly, in the very early days, uh, there wasn't as much science as likely there could have been. We just took a look at what was available in the market and started testing out pricing to see what could work. So it wasn't nearly as scientific, I think, as it could have been. And as time goes, the transition that we started to make is to get much more scientific about it, where we do a whole lot of research, understand the market, understand also models for SaaS pricing that could work for you and uh, actually then sit down and create a couple of different pricing models and pressure test that not only internally, but also externally with you know, a bunch of your existing customers. And I think if you are hands-on and really understand the customer base and go through this process and compare and contrast, you, you'll, you'll have a set of pricing at the end of it that you then take to potential new customers and do some additional testing there to make sure that it works. And then I think the hard part is as you're transitioning in pricing, Whenever you transition, ideally you're transitioning in a way that you know, is a value for your company as much as it is for customers. You really need to, I think, articulate to, to the sales organization, the marketing organization, why you're changing your pricing. You know, so some opportunities, but also some challenges, and do really good training around it. And and, and I think in in Grubo's history, I think we've done a good job of that in some cases, but other times we. I don't think we did quite as good job. You know, that it's easy to do that exercise and then expect it just to happen. You can't do that. You have to get hands on and make sure you do a great job of training and communicating to, to make sure that folks not only understand it, but they feel comfortable in executing it. And when you need to you know, give them a little bit more confidence that you absolutely can do it, uh, you need to know when those moments are and make sure you do that. It's a common notion that SaaS companies simply don't charge enough. Did, did you find that with with your take in the early days? Were you underpricing yourself? And have you seen kind of the evolution of yourself kind of upstream in the market with the knowledge that actually, based on value-based pricing, you have the ability to charge more? And so, so I think that that's accurate. I think that that feels right to me. A lot of companies do underprice. And I think in, in the early days, you just I think the reason that happens is you're very excited to have a product and take it to market. And... To, to have the validation and the proof points that your product does have product to market fit. People, you know, customers are willing to pay for it. Ideally, they're, they're large customers, etc. And that enthusiasm can overwhelm you a bit. And yes, I think we did price our product differently in the early days. We probably could have charged more. And I think that happens to a lot of companies. So when I interact now uh, with organizations that are a bit earlier in the life cycle than we are, uh, that's one of the things that I focus on is tell me about uh, your larger customers and what made them willing to pay more. And what is the profile of those customers? Should you not focus on those customers, on that value, and orient your pricing around delivering that value? And go ahead, and it's just an, an, it's an exercise of focus. Do you allow for customization to allow the ACV to go, to go much higher? I, I think there's a difference between pure customization and productizing 
elements of your product that can be customized. And true customization is hard because uh, at that point you're doing it and it can could, it could become one-off. I think it's preferred if you have a sophisticated understanding of your customer base, which ideally you're building all the time, um, and the value that they want, you can prioritize you know, call it two or three different customizations that you then create product around so that you don't need to pull engineering resources to do one-off implementations. It's much better if you have a product built around it that you then can take to market as well. And the position that you, then you're in a nice position because you say, look, we hear this, we've heard this many times and not surprising at all. And, you know, this is part feature X is something that is a customization that we offer off the shelf. And we try X dollars for it. Okay, absolutely. Productizing customization. Love it. I think that's right. And then I'd love to dive into a quick fire with you. So it's called 60 Seconds Sasta. So it's a quick fire. Uh-huh. You've got it. Uh, so let's start with productivity tools. What do you do to stay on top of everything that you have? Yeah, so I, I do uh, I do a handful of things. And I think first and foremost, company, we do quarterly planning, uh, and that's really helpful for me. Every week, I set three important items that I must make happen. And then in the mornings, uh, every morning, I sit down and I plan for just about 45 minutes where I write down a list of tasks. And I actually spend a lot of time on it because I try to get them down to where they're, they're only four to six minute tasks. So that means I have several dozen of them on any given day so that they fit into the meetings and people work that I do. Yeah, I mean, what that does for me is it allows me to in 20 minutes for me before I have a meeting. If I have a 20 minute block, I can actually do a lot in 20 minutes. Because I've thought about exactly what needs to happen, and it's structured in a way where it's only a five-minute task. You know, an example of this is if we have to put together a, a strategy to take a new product to market, for example. That might be something that you write down, but that's actually kind of unhelpful, right? Because it's big, and in 20 minutes, you need to sit down, think about it, and structure it a bit. But instead, if you had eight or ten just distinct small tasks, you could take 20 minutes and make progress on that. So I do that, and I do that inside of Evernote. And the next thing that I do is I have Wonderlist, and I have Wonderlist both on my Chrome open all the time, and I have it on my phone. And uh, a lot of the team likes to make fun of me because whenever we talk about, about something, I always open up my phone and I jot it down in Wonderlist. And that's just how I track every conversation that I'm having and, and to-dos and next steps so that I can run uh, what feels like a very up-tempo pace in execution. Uh, and then I just clear that out. At the end of the day, go ahead and rebuild my list that I that I worked on at the beginning in the morning. And that, that's how I manage you know, the weeks, the days, the months, and the quarters. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? Yeah, so it's a great question. And, and I, I've thought a lot about this as, as of late, especially, you know, we, we live in a world where technology moves so fast and markets change so fast. And the desire to move quickly, execute things can be pretty overwhelming. So I I wish I knew this a while ago, which is sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. And prioritizing the things that are, you know, I think for the long-term benefit of the company, when I said long-term, I mean several years, can absolutely take precedent to pressing near-term items. That's a really important notion that sometimes you have to go slower 
to go faster. So that's what probably is for me. Fantastic one. And then let's do final quick fire. Is the future of education purely on demand, do you think? I, I think the future of workplace learning is, is more predictive. So not necessarily purely on demand, but knowing where you need to learn, when you need to learn it, and what specifically, which format in which you are most likely to consume and learn it. And that ideally happens before you realize there's a learning moment as you're interacting with the world. So I, I think that's really the future. And then we're not in quick fire, so not to worry. But I do want to finish today with a little bit on location and, and how you perceive, because your location is obviously in New York. So how you perceive the SaaS scene in New York to be developing and how for you it's been different from maybe leading leading a company in the valley where most traditional SaaS companies uh, originated and developed. I, I've been working in technology here in New York uh, since about 2006. And when I first started, there wasn't very much of a community here of technology in New York. There were really just a handful of us, frankly. And to see in a decade the degree to which the community has been developed and there's camaraderie and, and, and there's more people in technology now in New York than ever before. Um, this certainly is exciting and it's had a, a, a very large impact. So I, I think the difference is you know, here, here in New York, we're, we're recruiting and grooming talent. That helps us build our companies and scale our companies as we go. The difference is in Silicon Valley, I think, is we just have a concentration of so many people that work in technology. And I think that's probably the primary difference. And we spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley to this end because of the concentration of talent. And that's not to say we don't have phenomenally talented people here in New York, because we absolutely do. But to have access to two talent pools, I, I think, is, is quite helpful. <laughs> absolutely it is. But Jeff, it's been absolutely wonderful to have you on the show today. As I said, Greg said, of all my founders, you've got to have Jeff on the show. Well, I hope I lived up to the expectation. Absolutely lived up to it. I'm still uh, in shock from the productivity tip, which makes me feel terrible about myself. Uh, but thank you so much for joining. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today, Jeff. Well, I appreciate it, Harry. Thanks so much. And, and also thank you, Greg, for recommending me. What a fantastic guest Jeff was to have on the show today. And again, a huge thanks to Greg for making the intro, without which the interview could not have happened. And if you like the show today and want to see more from Sasta, then you can head over to sasta.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, where you can find all of Jason's incredible articles, as Jeff mentioned in the show today, and more podcast episodes. And if you want drinks with Harry, that's Mojitos with me at Sasta Annual 2017. All you have to do is type in the promo code Drinks with Harry when you purchase your tickets for Sasta Annual 2017. As always, we so appreciate all your support and look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode with Josh Reeves, founder and CEO at Gusto.